when we left off, if you recall. If you want to maintain a more meditative posture, that's fine with me. We talked about piti and sukha. both of which flow quite naturally out of the development of the first four contemplations. As samadhi develops, this very simple process of aiming our attention at the breathing and fixing our attention, that point of touch, of contact, if done over and over again, leads at first to rapture or PT, which is a more active and stimulating kind of happiness, felt in the body as well as the mind. And then as the energy runs down from PT, Sukha becomes more clear. Sukha has been there all along, been there all along, but been dominated by this more active kind of happiness. And sukha is sometimes translated as happiness or as bliss. Sukha is very different. It has a soothing effect. Very calming and soothing. We now move into the seventh contemplation, which reads, this is the Buddha saying, I'm breathing in and I'm aware of the activities of the mind in me. I'm breathing out and I'm aware of the activities of the mind in me. The yogi practices like this. What we have now is a parallel in some ways to the third contemplation. Put in a somewhat different language, in the third, the breath, if you recall, was conceived of as a body conditioner. That is, as the breath became more subtle, so would the body. As the breath became more coarse, so would the body, and many other uh, relationships. And our, one of our tasks in the third uh, contemplation was to begin to be- become more at home with this relationship between the breath and the body, particularly the way in which the breath conditioned the body. Well, now in this, in the seventh, what we're concerned about is not how the breath conditions the body, but how feelings condition the mind. We're starting to move more into the mind. And in this case, how does piti affect the mind? How does sukha affect the mind? And in the same way, they're conditioners. And just very briefly, much as you can imagine, based on what's been said about these two qualities already, 
relative to each other, PT is more coarse, active, excited, at times even restless and agitated, even though there's joy in it. Sometimes the body can be just jumping for joy, just kind of edgy and antsy. But there's a happiness in it, a contentment. How does that, how does PT condition the mind? And as you bring awareness to PT, all the while being with the in-breath and the out-breath, you begin to see that, for example, the kinds and qualities of thoughts that the mind has is influenced by the feelings, the feeling of PT. If you see the mind without PT and then you see it as PT becomes uh, slightly stronger and then perhaps full-blown, and that's when you see it very clearly. And that, of course, comes out of the deepening of samadhi, and that's why samadhi is central. Unless the samadhi arouses or gives birth to the PT, then we can't really do this contemplation because there's no, there isn't PT to, to look at. Now, it doesn't have to be the full development of PT, but there has to be enough for us to look at something that's recognizably it. And when we look at sukha, which has a soothing and peaceful effect, we'll see that it too is a, a mind conditioner, and that the quality and kinds of thoughts that the mind has seem to be very related. And so you'll find that when there's sukha, there's more likely to be very subtle and calm thinking, often more optimistic or even the content may be more explicitly dharma and meditative. When there's PT, it's not so. It's much more coarse, not as fine. The thoughts of a rather different nature. And so that's what the seventh one is about. We begin, we're still studying PT, assuming that it has been aroused. We're still studying sukha. But now we begin to notice that they have an effect on the mind, the way the mind is. And all the while, we're staying with the in-breath and the out-breath. You see, we never let go of that, no matter what contemplation we're doing. The in and the out-breath are there. But now the breath is clearly recedes a bit. It's not that we're interested in how the breath influences the mind. We're interested in how feeling influences the mind. And then we move to the eighth and final contemplation in this uh, section on feelings. And it says, I'm breathing in and making the activities of the mind in me calm and at peace. I'm breathing out and making the activities of the mind in me calm at peace. The yogi practices like this. If you can recall, that is a parallel to, to the relationship of the way the third and the fourth unfolded. In the third, we saw the breath as a conditioner of the body, and then we saw the breath specifically as a conditioner of the body in terms of it calming. As the breath became calm, it suggested that the body becomes calm, and we're encouraged to see that. Here, it's not the breath, but what we're looking at are feelings, and see that 
same process of calming, go to work. Now, once we get here, something somewhat different is called for. For example, if you have PT and it's quite an active and stimulating kind of energy, then we have to take the energy out of PT one way or another because it won't be calming the mind. And there are two ways to do that, two main ways. One is through the samadhi practice itself. That is, as the mind becomes more concentrated, you move beyond PT. Now, PT as it is, is a real obstacle to Vipassana work. You can't investigate if your mind's even though it's happy, it's excitable and stimulated. It could be very encouraged and taking delight. For example, one of the main ways in which PT develops is that there's a delight taking, taken in the accomplishment of practice. Because this PT, in part, is a response to the fact that our samadhi is getting stronger. And there's an inescapable uh, kind of feeling of almost celebration that, oh, it's happening. It's not that we're cultivating this. But suddenly there's an excitable kind of happiness that, oh, my mind is getting more concentrated. And look at that. I'm get- Boy, that's great. Things are happening for me. It's working. Now, as necessary as that is, remember, PT is an enlightenment factor. So the Buddha thought that this ability to nourish the mind with this kind of joy was an extremely important capacity for a yogi to have. Nonetheless, you can't do vipassana with a mind like that, at least not very well. Now, so one way is through the samadhi practice itself. That as the, uh, the concentration develops, we leave piti behind. It's just a natural process. But now we're with sukha, and sukha is, is much closer to what we need. It's soothing, and it's peaceful. It's a, a blissful kind of happiness. And yet, that has some problems as well. Both of them can be attached to. Both of them can be quite attached to. They're very delectable and sukha even more so. PT you get tired of. You get fed up. Sometimes on long retreats it can last for a long period of time, days on end, or many, many hours on end. And at first it's exhilarating. It feels triumphant that, oh, the practice is really happening. But after a while you just get fed up with it. Okay, enough joy already. I can't stand this. Sukha is different. Sukha is more dangerous in that sense. It's a soothing, calm kind of happiness, and it's uh, something that is easier to be with for long periods of time. It's really welcome. So the potential for grasping onto it, and either thinking that you're enlightened, or not being interested in investigation or vipassana at all, like who cares about impermanence? And, emptiness and anatta and all those terms it gives, it gives me a headache. I just want to just be peaceful. How wonderful. 
I think I'll even become a hermit and leave the world and end my relationships and quit my job. I love it here. This is better than anything I've ever known. It's helpful to have a teacher at that point or a friend who's been there to help you get out of it. Now, you can come out of the piti through vipassana itself by gaining insight into it. First of all, uh, it's the use of wisdom. And it can be, you, at whatever level of samadhi you have, you can put wisdom to work here. For example, you'll see that although piti at first is something that's very appealing, after a while you look at it more carefully when it lasts for a while and you realize there's some unsatisfactoriness in it. Moreover, especially if you value vipassana, you realize that this is an enemy of vipassana. It's not workable. And there's something valuable in it, but this is to be let go of. And so sometimes just a wise seeing of that is enough to not overvalue it, and it's easy to not get caught there. With sukha, the same things, the same antidotes can be used. One is a samadhi antidote, because as your samadhi gets stronger, you naturally go beyond sukha as well. You come into ikagata, one-pointedness. And that's just pure awareness, the mind, the knowing, knowingness, knowing itself. The sensory doors are quiet. And there's a development in jhanic attainment. There's a, the first, all the factors of the, of the jhanas, and there, there are five of them. Vitaka, which is that aiming, aiming our attention at the breath. Vichara, which is that sticking to it, rubbing up against it, fixing on it, staying with it, not slipping off, or slipping off as little as possible. That's the second factor. Then comes piti, and sukha, and then one-pointedness. And these five, when developed, are the first jhana. Jhana means absorption. You become quite deeply absorbed. And in that, sama- in that state, samadhi is uh, quite adequate, quite strong, strong enough for us. Now, even before that, the samadhi that you have is adequate to do vipassana work. So it's not as if you have to wait for that to happen. And even before that, the hindrances, which I haven't mentioned by name, but those are the preoccupations that have, since the beginning of our work together, we've referred to as, which pull us away from the breath. Wanting and restlessness and anger and ill will and sloth and torpor and doubt. I'm assuming that all of you have heard talks about this enough, or it's in any basic Buddhist book. What's important to know about the hindrances in terms of our work here is that there's a complete inverse relationship between the hindrances and samadhi. That is, a, a, a peaceful mind and a mind without hindrances is really the same thing. As the con- or a concentrated mind The development of concentration is the weakening of the hindrances. They go together. 
And so long before even the first jhana, it's possible for the hindrances to not be a problem. Pretty much laid to rest. And so the mind is quite calm and peaceful and can do investigation. Okay, now... Sukha can be let go of through the samadhi practice by becoming even more concentrated and also, again, through wisdom. You can examine sukha itself and see that it's impermanent. Also, and when, once you see that it's impermanent, you see that there's a letdown after the great joy of residing in it, the great peace of being so peaceful. There's a real fulfillment and happiness in it, but it ends. And so you realize, this is wonderful, and it's good if I can come back here from time to time, but the journey isn't over. And in order to investigate, to bring vipassana into work, into play, then a more active mode is needed. Okay, now, clearly these four steps in their fullness can't be done until you experience these feelings. We're moving through the sutta so you know what it's about. And as you practice, if you experience even some degree of piti, some degree of sukha, then you're, you can begin to work with them in the ways in which it's been suggested. However, uh, tonight what I'd like to, to do is do some work with feelings. Remember, these four contemplations, although PT and Sukha have been emphasized, that is two rather uh, dramatic kinds of feeling, this segment of the Sutta is, is concerned with feeling. And we have to get to know unpleasant feeling and pleasant feelings of varying degrees. Now, unpleasant feeling is something that that's easier to come by, wouldn't you say? You may not have sukha so easily or PT, but everyone knows dukkha is there. You don't have to take a meditation retreat to develop uh, uh, dukkha in the body so that you have an object to study. And so what we're going to do now in this sitting, which is coming up right now, is not only study uh, what is called dukkha vedana, that is, these are unpleasant or even uh, extremely painful feelings. Um, I'm going to suggest what we do and then I think it would be good for everyone to perhaps stand up and take a short break. If you like, you can do it now. If you'd like to stand up. If you don't need to, that's all right. And I'll keep talking. Just a few more words that I have to say. what, I'm going to, what I'd like to suggest that we do in this sitting, which will be roughly a half an hour or so, is for you to bring, is to start off, let's say, with your breath, as you have been doing, but then make the body itself the field of attention and look for feelings in the body. Now, when I say feelings, it means there are sensations in the body and Uh, whichever sensation is most prominent at a a given moment, according to this approach, it's either pleasant 
to varying degrees. When it's extremely pleasant, then you're into PT and sukha. Or it's unpleasant. It can be mildly unpleasant or it can be excruciatingly painful or it's neutral. And in Buddhist psychology, those are the three feelings that are studied a lot because they have incredible consequences. It's extremely important to get to know your feelings. Feelings here are not the same as emotions. This is a more, a simpler, it's an earlier stage of what emotions are built up out of it, particularly when there's no awareness. And the emotions just proliferate out of a pleasant feeling, by and large turning into wanting, grasping, attachment, holding on, yearning. When it's an unpleasant sensation, by and large that turns into uh, aggression, avoidance, aversion to that. And when it's neutral, often we space out or concoct something that's more interesting. Now, so what we'll be doing is staying open to the life of the body, going inside the body with your awareness, and from moment to moment being with whatever sensations are most prominent, but looking at them now from the angle of Vedana or feeling. Is this pleasant? Is it neutral or is it unpleasant? Now, if there is anything unpleasant, I would advise you to work with that, to gain experience with it. This also, as you can probably see, is a good way to work with physical pain. I haven't said how we'd work with it. What you would do is you'd focus attention on the feeling, just as you would with anything else, only you'd also stay in touch with the in-breath and the out-breath while you do it. If you think back, for most of us, the techniques and methods that we've used were either with the breath or were with something else. But in this practice, we're with Vedana, with feeling, while breathing in and breathing out. So that the in-breath and the out-breath are used to steady and anchor our attention, to nourish the awareness. But the primary object of attention is whatever feeling is predominant in the moment. Now, I think everyone in this room has uh, obviously at some point spent a fair amount of time with feelings in the body especially. And so you all know how to do that. So do that, but only now Stay in touch with the in-breath and the out-breath as you do it. As I bring attention to the body, there's some hardness or tension in the left shoulder. And I focus on into it being fully attentive to it. But I haven't lost contact with the in-breath and the out-breath. It's not quite as precise, that is the attention to the breathing, as when that's the only thing I'm doing. But I'm at the area of the nose. And that's 
more and more a part of an overall comprehensive attentiveness which includes those sensations in the shoulders which are on the painful side or slightly painful side and the breathing which is going on. And that's what the practice is for this sitting, please. As we breathe and observe unpleasant sensations, sometimes what you find is a transformation in that energy. Something that's unpleasant becomes less unpleasant. even change its character quite a bit, even totally. And if we attend to sensations which are neutral, that energy can sometimes be transformed into pleasant sensations just by being aware. Awareness has a certain magic. It's a very subtle power in and of itself. And now this awareness, using the breath to nourish it, to steady it, to anchor it, being directed to whatever feelings are most prominent for you right now in the body. Feelings needn't be limited to the body, but for this sitting, I would suggest we do that. Sometimes as you're examining the sensations in a part of the body, While breathing in and breathing out, it feels as if that part of the body is breathing. And that's fine, but we're not sending the breath to that part of the body. If we feel the expression of breathing there, that's fine, but it's not something we're actively doing. Anything we can talk over about any aspect of what's been said and done tonight? This last sitting in particular I would find interesting to find out how that was for you because it's the first time we're beginning to develop this ability that we're going to need throughout the rest of it as we get into the heart of Vipassana itself. That is, as we examine the mind and the body, can we stay in touch with the in and out breath as we do it? And if that's helpful, is it of any value to do that? It may not be for you.
You drifted into the thirteenth contemplation. You're just precocious, which is the contemplation of impermanence while breathing in and breathing out. It's all right. All, everything's happening simultaneously. The whole sixteen steps, sometimes it's just all happening at once. Uh, so in seeing all the feelings, uh, what came along with it was your sense of, of change, of movement. Yeah, lack of... Uh Were you able to stick with what you landed on? Let's say there's a feeling. Is it that you were flitting around or the sensations were? The sensations seem to kind of arise and pass away of their own. Uh-huh. I was able to stick with them, but they just didn't seem to last. That's right. Were you able to feel the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality? Because that's what this contemplation is concerned with. Now, this may have taken over. The fact that the impermanence may have taken over, and that's what I meant. You, you've drifted into the thirteenth contemplation, where we'd be contemplating no matter what is there, seeing that it's impermanent while breathing in and breathing out. Well, I guess I was sort of thinking about the unpleasant things. I was sort of, like, sort of conscious of more of the painful or the, the irritating sensations than the necessarily the pleasant sensations. Mm-hmm. Uh, what part did the breath play in all this? Were you able to stay with the breath while doing it? Yeah. Just, uh, just felt like Could you tell yet whether it was of any value, of any help? What, breath? Mm-hmm. That is, remember, uh, the, what we're attending to here, this contemplation, is feelings. So that you're looking at the particular feelings while staying with the in-breath and the out-breath. Is there a point to doing that? I mean, it's maintained that there is, that this is a useful practice. But you have to find out if it is for you. Well, it felt like the breath was more... had, had the confidence you get the sensation to get it. Continued awareness of the breath and interrupted awareness of various sensations. Yeah, no, that's good, yeah. Is that a smile, or just merely a smile, or is there some content behind it? <laughs> oh, I guess there's content behind it. Right. I had lots of pains and aches, and I'm afraid I could not
as the last person said, but the fact that the continuity was there of the breath was very uh, reassuring. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Okay, counts for something. It wasn't a very long sitting, you know. You, it, it's more helpful if, we, let's say, if you had a full hour, two or three hours, something like that. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. Well, then you could really study Dukkha Vedana. Yeah. Anyone else want to, as they say in California, share your experience? Yeah, when the two and they're coordinated, it has a very steadying effect. Sometimes very soothing. Uh, and it can be very helpful when you're examining unpleasant, let's say, let's say unpleasant mental states, fear, loneliness, anger, sorrow, physical pain. The breath can be a very soothing influence in the whole process and help you stay awake. It's not essential to bring the breath in. That is. As you all know, you can practice vipassana by just paying attention to the feelings or whatever else it is. This is a method that uh, can be of some help in doing that, in helping you to do that. Uh, And for some people it is. In fact, it's dramatic, and for others it isn't. Now, you have to give it more of a try, and we'll be moving into the mind directly, I think, next week. We'll be examining the mind directly while breathing in and breathing out. We were already beginning in small ways. Okay, if there's nothing else, um, say a few words uh, about the breath and daily life, only I'm not going to say them. You know, in uh, the TV ads now, I mean, this is an old thing. They'll have, in America, it's quite an old thing. You have famous athletes, baseball players and basketball players and football players endorse a car or a product, and apparently people are more likely to buy it because whoever it is. Or you get movie actors telling you to use AT&T, and I guess more people use AT&T because some famous actor or actress endorses this, that, or the other. And so I hope by reading what Teach Not Han has to say about the breath and daily life, even if you won't listen to me, maybe you'll listen to him. The way in which he views it, um, using the breath uh, 
in daily life is under the first two contemplations, which makes sense. It's sort of getting to know the breath. It's Most of the readers of this book do not live in forests, under trees, or in monasteries. In our daily lives, we drive cars and wait for buses, work in factories and offices, talk on the telephone, clean our houses, cook meals, wash clothes, and so on. Therefore, it is most important that we learn to practice full awareness of breathing during our daily lives. Usually, when we perform these tasks, our thoughts wander and our joys, sorrows, anger, and unease follow close behind. Although we are alive, we are not able to bring our minds into the present moment, and we live in forgetfulness. We can begin, begin by becoming aware of our breath, by fo- following our breathing. Breathing in and breathing out, we know we are breathing in and out. And we can smile. He, he uses a technique of intentionally smiling on the out-breath. I, it can be helpful, but I'm not using it. And we can smile to affirm that we are ourselves and that we are in control of ourselves. Through awareness of breathing, we can be awake in and to the present moment. By being attentive, I'll skip that part. Most of our daily activities can be accomplished while following our breath according to the instructions in the sutra. I'll repeat that. Most of our daily activities can be accomplished while following our breath according to the instructions in the sutra. When our work demands special attentiveness in order to avoid confusion or an accident, we can unite, we can unite full awareness of breathing with the task itself. For example, when we are carrying a pot of boiling water or doing electrical repairs, we can be aware of every movement of our hands and we can nourish this awareness by means of our breath. I'm breathing out and I'm aware my hands are carrying a pot of boiling water. Or I'm breathing in and I'm aware that my right hand is holding an electrical wire. Or even, I'm breathing in and I'm aware that I'm passing another car. I'm breathing out and I know that the situation is under control. We can practice like this. In fact, it is not enough to combine awareness of breathing only with tasks tasks which require so much attention. We must also combine full awareness of our breathing with all the movements of our body. I'm breathing in and I'm sitting down. I'm breathing in and wiping the table. I'm breathing in and smiling at myself. I'm breathing in and lighting the stove. Stopping the random progression of thoughts and living in forgetfulness is a giant step forward in meditation practice. We can realize this step by following our breath and combining it with awareness of our daily activities. By following your breath and combining the full awareness of breathing with your daily activities, you can cut across the stream of disturbing thoughts and light the lamp of awakening. Full awareness of an out-breath and an in-breath is something wonderful that anyone can practice. Even if you live in a monastery or a meditation center, you can practice in this way. Combining full awareness of breathing with full awareness of the movements of the body during daily activities, walking, standing, lying, sitting, working, is a basic Dharma practice to cultivate concentration and to live in an awakened state. 
Thich Nhat Hanh was not saying anything special. What he was repeating is at the core of Vipassana practice of all Buddhist Dharma. And it's essentially bringing mindfulness into our life. The dramatic events in our life and the miscellaneous and sometimes routine and obscure events, all of which is our life. And the breath is simply a means, a rather simple one, readily available to help us do that, to help us stay awake, to help us know our life as we live it. Not that you have to use the breath to do this, you're welcome to not, but for the life of this work with this sutta, it would be very helpful to give it a try and to see what the possibilities and uh, limitations may be for this technique for you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.